sermon text this morning comes from Psalm 40. Uh, and as we spend time in the Psalms this summer, let's remember that the key to understanding any psalm is really understanding the worldview that's behind it, the worldview that flows from knowing the Lord himself, knowing who he is, what he's like, what he does. And it's been a little while since we've done this, but I wanted us to look at these worldview questions again that were developed by Jay Scar, one of my old professors. I'm going to read the questions if you'll read the answers. Do we have those up? No? Okay. Never mind. We're going to skip that part. I'm going to tell you um, what I have here. It, these questions are so helpful. Uh, my professor, he every at the start of every class, we would run through these. And they get burned into my brain and they help me. And I wanted to help you too. The first question is simply, who is the Lord? Delight to do your will, O oh my God. 
Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. Says the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Kids, y'all can come up and do an Well, it is my purpose to talk to you about Psalm 40 today, and this song. Uh, God uses it to teach us how to deal with trouble. He says, first of all, if you're in trouble, cry out to God. And number two, look for God to rescue you. And number three, praise Him for it. And tell everybody about what He's done. You can hear that in the very beginning. So here's verse one. It says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclines me and heard my cry. So what's, what's, what's David doing when he's in trouble? He's crying out to God. Verse 2. He drew me up out of the miry body and set my feet upon a rock. God rescued him. And then number 3. He put, this is verse 3. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. He praised God through his song. Now, I'd like you to pretend that this is David. Looks a little small, right? But you have to pretend with me. Here's David. And then here is a miry bog. Do you see this goo here? It is slimy. You can stick your finger in there. And it is, it is gooey. That, pretend, is the miry bog. Okay, now what happens to David? He's in it. Oh, nasty. Look at that goo all over his feet. And he has trouble getting out of it. He can't get out. Now, what is that goo? What does it symbolize? Well, later on in the song, he talks about two things. Trouble that's outside and trouble that's inside. So, can you think of some trouble outside? Sickness. That's not because of your heart. It's because something happened to you. Can you think of Trouble inside? Or feeling jealousy or having some other gap? Like what Thomas has, Oh, yes. Now that's inside his body, but did he cause that? No. So the, I would call that outside. The inside would be sin, 
So we can cause a lot of trouble ourselves about anything happening to us. It's in our heart and that sin. Now what David does next is he moves to saying that anybody who trusts in God, anybody can call out to him. And then he goes back and says, there are many, many instances, many times when God's people have been rescued. God has rescued again and again. Can you think of a good, big rescue that God has done for us? Yes. What, what, what? Jesus dying on the cross. Amazing, right? There is a rescue. So he is willing to go to the cross. And he goes there and dies for our sin. And rises again to give us new life. And so now, through that rescue... When we're in trouble, we can craft him and we know that he cares for us. He demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still his enemies, he loved us. So you can call out to him. You know you can trust him. And he will rescue. And then two other things. He bought us back for himself so that he is right there with us in the trouble. And one day, even when we die, we will get to be with him forever. That is amazing. Now, at the end of the psalm, he does it one more time. He talks about crying out to him, about looking for his saving, his rescue, and then praising him for it. But this time, it's because there's trouble right now. So even before the psalm is done, he's in the middle. While he's writing, he's in the middle of trouble. We kind of like those books where it's lived happily ever after at the end, or the movie where everybody has a great ending. They have one big trouble, and it's over. But in this life, you will have trouble. Jesus told us that. We're going to have trouble. So what do you do when you have trouble? First, you cry out to him. And then you look to him to do what? Save. To save us, to rescue us. And then finally, what do we do? We praise him. That's right. Now, we have a real current problem right now that we all know about, which is Thomas Gaines. He's sick. So we have a problem right now. We can look back and see what God did for Rodney. There he is. Lost his job. He got him. God provided, rescued by that job. Remember Ben Christman? Hit by a truck. But restored, right? You're dead. You can think straight. God has rescued him. Let's remember what God has done so that when we have a new trouble, we know where to turn. We cry out to him. Look to his salvation and praise him for it. All right, you can have a seat. Thanks, guys. It, if you remember in Psalms 37, 38, 39, David has encouraged others and himself to wait on the Lord. Confronted, like Austin was saying, by the evil within him and also the evil that surrounds him. David's posture has been like a watchman of a sieged city. He's looking over the heads of his enemies to the horizon beyond, hoping to see the glint of the sun on the long spears of strong friends coming to rescue. That is the posture that he describes in the opening line of Psalm 40. Literally, he says, waiting, I waited for the Lord. And we do know something about waiting. You know the feeling when an awareness of the wrong around us and the wrong inside of us is matched by an awareness of our weakness. We ourselves are people 
who are not how we want to be, living in a world that is not as it's supposed to be. We are waiting for the day from Psalm 37 when, where the Lord says, In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. And we are waiting for more than that. Because like Thomas and the Cains are experiencing now, the frailty of these bodies burdened and grievous. So many of us are groaning not only for temporary health, but ultimately for resurrection. With that, we wait for the day when the fickleness of our hearts is turned to steadfastness, when we are no longer prone to wander and leave the God we love. We look for that day when our disordered loves that twist our lives and hurt other people are set right. We wait for that day when we no longer crash into one another in a vain fight to be at the center of things, but rather we move in perfect orbit, dancing beautifully together with each other around our glorious God. Every saint, every believer has sung this old song of waiting. Abraham and Joseph, Moses and Deborah, Ruth and Jeremiah, Malachi and Anna in the temple, like them, we raise our strained voices to the only one who can change our song. Even the martyrs under the altar in heaven from Revelation 6, even they say, Sovereign Lord, how long? Like them, we pray, we cry out, and we wait. As David shares his story with us, he doesn't tell us how long he waited, and and that's hard for us because we would really prefer a timeline. We want to be able to say only three more hours, y'all, and I am out of this hole. And I wonder what would happen if we actually do that. But I'm pretty sure God has a reason for not telling. And I'm pretty sure that reason has something to do with him inviting us to just keep trusting him. And so, waiting, David waited for the Lord. And what did the Lord do? Look at, again at verses 1 and 2. Like a loving father, he bowed down to his child, and he listened. He reached down into the pit, rescuing David and setting him on a place of solid security. And in doing so, he changes David's song. His old song of waiting gives way to a new song of celebration. And so I want us to, to ask this first big question here. How does the new song of celebration go? How does it go? Well, when you're looking at verses 3 through 11, you're reading the lyrics. And so let's pick out his themes. First, David sings his confidence in the Lord. He sings his confidence in the Lord. Second, David sings of his own renewed commitment. His own renewed commitment. And third... David sings encouragement to his brothers and sisters, encouragement to the people of God. First, listen to his confidence in the Lord. Even before his, re his rescue, that confidence existed. Augustine points out how the very act of crying to the Lord is itself an expression of confidence in the Lord. He, he says those who are already crying out of the deep are not absolutely in the lowest deep. 
The very act of crying is already lifting them up because their faith is grabbing hold of the one to whom they cry. But now that the Lord has lifted him up and made him secure, David's confidence in the Lord has only grown. In verse 5, David sings about how the Lord has multiplied his wondrous deeds and thoughts toward his people. Looking back over all that God has done, not only for him personally, but also throughout the ages, for those who hope in him, looking back on those wondrous deeds of God gives David confidence that the Lord will continue in his care for his people. Just as the Lord directed his thoughts toward his people and gave Isaac to Abraham and parted the Red Sea for Moses and rescued Deborah from Sisera, he'll continue to direct his saving thoughts toward his people. From David's perspective, another says, the past is full of God's miracles and the future full of his plans. That's the force of this word thoughts here. Because the thoughts of the Lord are not like the thoughts and prayers of people. His thoughts are always connected to powerful action according to his sovereign will. And so David sings to the Lord this new song saying, none can compare with you. For you and me in our waiting today, David's confidence in the Lord helps us. Because he does lead us to look to the past. Time would fail us, as it does David in verse 5, to recount all the times God's saving thoughts were revealed in wondrous deeds. But for our confidence in him today to strengthen and grow, we need only look back to when God sent his son. Because when his people were trapped in the pit of sin and destruction, God sent his son into the pit himself. And so we have to say here that it's vital that we grasp the reality that this song is not just David's song. Because this song is, most, is actually most truly Jesus' song. Sung to celebrate the Father's faithfulness in bringing Jesus through death back to life. Because though sinless himself, he entered into all the miseries of this life. Like, I, like Austin was saying, he sank down into the mire of our sin on the cross, suffering under the curse for us. And although his body waited in the grave, the Father did not abandon him to death, but raised him up, establishing him forever as our King, who sings over us the songs of redemption. And as you and I today, as we embrace him again, we have confidence in our waiting because we know that the rescue that all humanity has been waiting for has already begun. Already with Christ, we've been raised from the pit of sin and death. Already we have been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Already our feet are set on the solid rock of Christ himself so that we stand secure both in life and in death. But it's here that I have to point out the obvious, that there is a massive difference between confidence in the Lord and confidence that he will do what we want or what we expect. 
David is not confident that his circumstances will change in the ways that he wants. His confidence is in a person, in the Lord himself. A, a man is not hashtag blessed because his struggles end or his health is restored or his enemies fall. In verse 4, the blessed man is simply the one who makes the Lord his trust. And that's important to grasp because God's plans often go against the grain of human wisdom, of human desire. Think about how Christ saved us, rescuing us from the pit by getting into the pit. That doesn't make any sense to us. That saving us from death by dying himself, nobody would have imagined that. And when we really stop and think about it, God's ways often hurt our heads. Because you and I have our ideas about how we want our circumstances to change. We have our plans. We have our expectations about what we think God should do. But should we ask Him to submit to our wisdom? No, when, when we see the way that God saved us through His Son then we can entrust ourselves to Him even when what He's doing doesn't make any sense to us. Even when things are not going the way that we want. With confidence in Him, we can entrust ourselves and others to His wisdom and to His will even when our heads and our hearts are hurting. Isn't that exactly what we see in the Canes right now? They long for Thomas to be well. Their hearts are hurting, aching as they wait for this new heart for him. And we wait and we hurt with it. But because our confidence is in the Lord and his wise love for them, we can pray with them those words that Sarah shared. Praying thy will be done and trusting by faith that it will be done. That it is being done. Even now. Even in this disquiet, I am utterly yours, O Christ. In the midst of this uncertainty, I abandon myself again to you, the author and the object of all of my truest hopes. Knowing the Lord and looking back on what he has done in Christ, we can sing with David of our confidence in him. Even amid our waiting, our confidence in him can strengthen and grow. That, that's in sharp contrast to those that David mentions in verse 4. Those who turn to the proud to go astray after a lie. The proud cannot be patient because they cannot submit themselves to the wisdom and the ways of God. Those who believe lies about the character of the Lord will never entrust themselves to Him. For you and me today, you and I will face plenty of temptation in our painful waiting to turn elsewhere. We'll hear many voices telling us what we should do to get out of our painful problems. But, another said, God's people must not be impatient. We must entrust all things, including our own lives and the salvation of all people, to the God who patiently is making all things new. And so first, David's new song celebrates his confidence in the Lord. But, 
Think with me, uh, look with me at verses 6 through 8. This is the second thing. David sings of his own renewed commitment because God has done wonders that demand a response. Look, look at verse 6. David mentions basically four different sacrifices. The words that are used point us toward four different sacrifices. But he says that the Lord has not delighted in them, that he has not required them. And that strikes us as strange that David seems to be setting aside sacrifices that God himself instituted. But if you think about the context here, David is not saying that those sacrifices are irrelevant. Rather, he is setting them in their proper perspective. Uh, another points out how God makes it clear in several places, like 1 Samuel 15, Psalm 50, Psalm 69, Amos 5, Michael 6. God makes it clear in many places that above all, God wants the total and complete obedience of those who worship Him, and not just the sacrifices that they offer to Him. And so David here is not negating the sacrificial system. He's pointing us to that which pleases God most. When God's already redeemed people obey Him and praise Him with their entire lives. And so as one already lifted up from the pit of sin and death, that is the kind of life that David is recommitting himself to live. He comes before the Lord with a heart that delights in doing what God says. He listens to God, and his heart pursues obedience to God's good law. That kind of obedience is the desire of all those who really know the Lord and have experienced his grace. Paul encourages us toward that very life in Romans 12 when he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, so that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, did you catch that there? Because God has already been merciful to you. God is calling you to a new kind of life. A life that is shaped by the will of God. Not some secret will that you have to discover, but His revealed will that you can read and hear and feed upon for yourself every day in His, in his Word. David sings this kind of recommitment to this kind of life. But we know that David didn't always live this way. Neither do we. we. We struggle like Paul, who also said, I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Like, like David and, and Paul, we often do the things that we hate. We often fail to do the good that we want to. But even though you and I often fail to present ourselves, our whole selves, to the Lord in this way, our failure itself leads us back to the very gospel of Jesus. 
Because Hebrews 10 tells us that when Christ came into the world, this very song was on his lips. To his father, Jesus said, Behold, I have come to do your will. And because Jesus obeyed God's will perfectly, because he presented his own body as a sacrifice and offering in our place, we, Hebrews tells us, we have been sanctified once for all, so that even our ongoing failure is covered by his grace. <clears throat> and you get it, guys. Far from that leading us into further rebellion, his grace presses us onward. His grace trains us to pursue new obedience again and again. Learning Jesus' song, love for God and for his good law becomes a part of the song of our lives too. And so if, like David, God has already lifted you from the pit of destruction in Christ, then join David now in renewing your commitment to obey him as your Here we come to the third part of David's song, and, and we, hear that, we hear that this life of confidence in God and obedience to Him, this life is not a private matter. This song of David's life is one sung loudly for others to hear, as David sings encouragement to his brothers and sisters. That's what we hear in verses 9 and 10. When David talks about the great congregation, what he has in mind is the gathering of God's people around the tabernacle. That was the meeting place between God and his people before the building of the temple. And, and once David had publicly danced before the Lord, unhindered by shame. But here, he says, his lips too have not been restrained. He speaks to others the good news of God's deliverance. He wants others to hear and enjoy and know the faithfulness of God so that they too might grow in confidence in Him. David knows that's how God often works. He says that in verse 3 when he says that those who see what the Lord has done for him will fear. He says that's not the fear of terror. But he's saying they'll see what God did for him and they will hold God in reverent awe. They will wonder at His love. His kindness, the kindness of God who rescues poor, guilty sinners. And they'll come to trust in Him for themselves. This others-oriented encouragement, this was in Jesus too. We hear His unrestrained announcing of good news in Luke 4 when He stands up publicly and says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Your Savior, your King, knows the good news, and he hasn't kept it from you. Even to you, even to us who are here at the ends of the earth, the gospel has come to us because your king wanted to make it known to you. And he shares the goodness of God with you so that you will believe it and enjoy confidence in him for yourself in all the waiting that you have to endure. 
having heard and seen the love and faithfulness of God in the face of Jesus and believed in him for ourselves, you and I have good news that we can share with each other, even with others in our community. We encourage others that he loves us. He really does love us. Nothing at all can separate us from his love. He is the God for whom it is always safe to wait. Because he is the one who bows the heavens down and he hears and he saves. That, that's the hope that is sinking deeply down into David's heart in verse 11. All of his singing has led David to a conclusion. Here, David's mind is less focused on himself or his ordeal and is more fixed on his expectations about the Lord. It, it may have been David's lips that were not restrained in verse 9, but here, David expresses his confidence that the Lord will not restrain his mercy. He speaks of his hope in future grace when he says, Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. And Christians, today, you know that that is the same hope that is yours in Christ. Jesus himself is God's assurance of his love and faithfulness following you and going ahead of you. Will the God who bowed the heavens and came down to you forsake you now? Will Christ who died for your sins now put them back onto you? Will the Father who gave you his spirit recall the gift? If our confidence were only in ourselves, we might have reason for fear. But because our hope of mercy and God's promise of preservation is rooted in the love and faithfulness and secured by the person and work of Jesus, then you and I, even today, even in our waiting, can live in the full confidence of present and future grace. But that means we have to talk about verses 12 to 15. Because here the song changes. A familiar but dissonant chord is struck. And here we need to ask the second big question. What is it that threatens our song? Because in these verses we see the return of trouble. David's confidence in the Lord, his commitment to obedience and his encouragement of others comes crashing up against the reality of life as a fallen person living in a fallen world. As another said, in undertaking all of this, all of the themes of his song, in undertaking it all, the thought comes unbidden. Can I keep it up? Because life will still threaten. Sin is still a menace. And resoluteness, my, resol my resolve, is a diminishing quantity. David is confident that the Lord will preserve him, but it seems that preservation does not equal immunity from evil. Surrounded by it, aware of his own sin, blinded by his own guilt, and feeling his heart's commitment failing, David finds himself right back where he started. Trouble has returned. And he's crying out again. He's waiting again. And you know what that feels like too. 
In this life, the return of trouble threatens to silence our celebration. How can we sing when the feared diagnosis is given? How can we sing when evil seems to be winning? When enemies taunt and injustice persists? How can we sing when we blow it again? And the shame blinds us. When it feels like the darkness is too strong, when we find ourselves in the pit again, waiting, wondering, is God still there? Can He possibly love us? Can He possibly love me? As David faces this fresh trouble, we hear in his distressed prayers a sense of urgency for the Lord to save him from himself and from those who delight in his hurt. And yet, at, at the same time, we hear, as one puts it, a note of underlying joy. As David remembers a wider circle and a bigger cause than his most pressing need. Uh, aware of his troubles, David is also freshly aware of the steadfast love and faithfulness of his God. His hard-won confidence in the Lord's future grace from verse 11 redirects him to his hope. A hope that is located outside of himself, even outside of his circumstances. His hope is in the faithfulness of the Lord, the God of steadfast love and unrestrained mercy. And that's why he encourages his brothers and sisters once again in verse 16. He doesn't want them to be shaken by what he himself is enduring. He wants them to glorify God even as he waits but David does more here. He encourages himself. He continues his song. Maybe it's quieter now than it was. Maybe it's being sung through tears. But you can still hear his confidence in the Lord. Knowing his own lack of strength. His own, knowing his lack of ability to take care of himself. He compares what he is, poor and needy, to who the Lord is. The Lord is takes thought for him. The Lord is his help and his deliverer. David knows that those thoughts that the Lord has toward him must be saving thoughts, connected to action, because the Lord is his help and his deliverer. And although David is desperate for him to come, for him he will wait. For you and me today, the realities of our pain are still a part of our song. But when you feel these deep troubles again, let them do their work. Let them drive you to remember, as David does, the difference between you and the Lord. Being honest about our helplessness and our neediness is actually good and right. But God invites us to remember that poor and needy people like us have in Him a help and a deliverer who has already passed through death into life. As it's written, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Church, we have an opportunity to do that together tonight. To raise our voices together in lament and hope. Come tonight at 6 as we pray for Thomas 
and his family amid their deep need, amid their weight. It would be good for us to do that together. But as Rodney prayed, in reality, there are so many deep needs among us right now. And not one of us knows what is going to happen. As another pastor said, here is the world. Beautiful and terrible things will happen. But then he adds, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid because Christ has already been raised. And you with him. So you and I can sing even when trouble comes as we cling to Christ, our enduring hope. Our Lord will not restrain his mercy from us. His steadfast love and his faithfulness will ever preserve us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we rejoice in this word. We praise you, O God. We know that you have heard our cries and you have already begun to answer them. Father, while we still wait in this present evil age where we hurt so much, there's so much to endure. Make us, make us steadfast. Make us confidence in you. That we may hold you in awe and trust in you no matter what comes. In the name of Christ our Lord and for his sake we pray. Amen.